Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Yeah. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. In a couple minutes, sometimes they just keep on calling in. Hallelujah. Too bad we don't have any music. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can sing you a song, but you don't hang up. <laughs> <laughs> well, praise the Lord. Somebody else. Yep, John. Hey, John, how you doing? Hey, not too bad. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, well, we'll just begin. They'll be calling in, so I don't want to. Yep. Okay, amen. Well, just welcome everyone to um, SIM, Subcommittee National Ministry Officer Conference Call. Amen. Hallelujah. And, and after this, this conference call will be uploaded to anchor.fm officer conference and if you want more information visit elvisiverson.com amen today we have our um the guest speaker is kip givens hallelujah i've known him um um i think um since um 2012 and and he's just a um, um one thing i know about him he, he has a, he studies a lot he studies a lot and, and he said has a depth of knowledge especially about um you know about um, um, incarnation and, and um, grace and and, um, and the Trinity, Hallelujah, and, and redemption and things and the atonement, Hallelujah, Amen. And that that which is lacking in many um, churches today and all that. Um, and so um, he just you know met him and his wife. Um, they used to hold meetings in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and. And um, they're in. They're into the new wine. They're into the new wine, and they're a little bit too radical. And um, but that's that's the way I like it. Amen. Hallelujah. So, so I'm going to turn it over to him so he can begin because he, so he can begin to share. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Elvis. And uh, yeah, it's a privilege and honor to be with you guys this evening. Uh, yeah, I've known Elvis for. Yeah, probably eight years or so, and uh, started hooking up at meetings and hanging out and come to some stuff at our house and shared, and we've uh, we've enjoyed a lot of uh, a good fellowship together and good times uh, just uh, pouring over the gospel and what that looks like for us. And um, when he asked me to do this, I asked if he wanted anything in, in particular, and he said, well, maybe this and this, but kind of free to do what you want to. And I just thought uh, a couple of things that he mentioned um, had to do with, like, the incarnation and the Trinitarian life. And those are things that are right up my alley, things that I enjoy talking about and discussing. And so this evening, I just want to talk for a few minutes and just kind of go over some, some uh, just some stuff that, that, that kind of burns within me uh, on incarnation. Oh, oh. Oh, Kip, hold on. Um, can everyone... Except Kip and me press star six. So someone else muted, except us. Okay. Okay, go on. So the, what I want to talk about tonight for just a few minutes is um, incarnation, Christology, and the Trinitarian life. Um, and those three things 
uh, kind of bundle a whole bunch of things into a few minutes tonight, just kind of a synopsis, um, hopefully giving you some, some uh, food to chew on and some, some nuggets for you to go back and explore yourself. Um, you know, here we are. We, we're sitting at uh, today's Palm Sunday. This is, you know, Holy Week. And next week is Easter. And for, for those that, you know, are uh, heavily involved in church structures, I mean, Easter's, Easter and Christmas are the two biggest days. You know, we love Easter and Resurrection Sunday. And that is kind of the, what we, we, we highlight is the pinnacle of our faith. And uh, it's like the greatest holiday, if, you, if I can use that word, holiday. And, and not to downplay by any, any stretch of the imagination the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. But that is the culmination of restoring what we lost in Eden. It is the crown of glory on the story of redemption, by far. It is the height of our celebration. But it isn't the whole story. We tend to wrap up the whole Christian story in the three days of crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, with a little preface on Jesus' earthly ministry, and then a little prologue about his ascension and our future in heaven. And friends, I would beg to argue with you that that is not the whole gospel. The gospel absolutely includes the Eastern narrative, but it begins much sooner and with something far greater. The origin story is of utmost importance. And when I uh, travel, when I go to different churches, um, I, I get frustrated sometimes, to be perfectly honest with you, because a lot of the stuff that, that is taught, preached, proclaimed, sung in our churches has so little of the actual gospel in it. There's so little of, that, of the incarnation. There's so little of the Trinitarian life, the life of Father, Son, and Spirit. There's so little of Christology. Um, I mean, we talk about Jesus, of course, and we talk about Jesus died for our sins and, and his death and his burial and his resurrection and all those things. But to, to, to really look at Christology, how the entirety of our faith is anchored and hinges upon the God-man, Jesus Christ. And uh, the incarnation is one of my absolute favorite things. Um, you know, and it's, and then as you have this, see, everything that we have to do, whether you're reading Genesis or Deuteronomy or Joshua or the prophets or the Gospels or the Apostle Paul, we have to view it all Christologically or through the lens of Jesus Christ and his finished work. We have to see things with a Trinitarian understanding. Without an understanding of the Trinity and the Trinitarian life, we don't, we really can't truly understand the fullness of God or the Godhead. Um, just a, as a couple brief, uh, very quickly, incarnational realities. The incarnation is forever. You know, Jesus became man, and when he ascended, he didn't lose his manhood, if you will. He didn't lose his humanity. The incarnation is now a forever thing. Uh, it is not only the method of our salvation, it is the continual seal of our redemption. Uh, the incarnation speaks of the Father's never-ending love for humanity. And here's the part that, that will scandal some people, but because of the incarnation, there will forever be a human sitting inside the Trinity. Martin Luther said, 
the mystery of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond human understanding. Athanasius said the incarnation is a revealing of the nature and the character of the Father. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, uh, this is a, uh, just a powerful quote. I love this thing. I actually posted this today just on my, my social media, but it, it's phenomenal. Uh, Augustine of Hippo said, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. What a picture of the incarnation and what Jesus did, what he left. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Karl Barth, uh, the great theologian, said the, the, native, the nativity mystery conceived from the Holy Spirit and born from the Virgin Mary means that God became human, truly human out of his own grace. The miracle of the existence of Jesus, his climbing down of God, is Holy Spirit and Virgin Mary. Here is a human being, the Virgin Mary, and as he comes from God, Jesus comes also from this human being. Born of the Virgin Mary means a human origin for God. Jesus Christ is not only truly God, he is human like every one of us. He is human without limitation. He is not only similar to us, he is like us. A couple verses that you all are very familiar with. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, uh, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Matthew, Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, verse 23, he describes that Emmanuel. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. You break that down in the Greek. It's God with us. It's God among us. God one of us. Creator immersed in his creation. Artist entering into his art. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, said, those who assert that he was a mere man begotten by Joseph being ignorant of him who from the virgin is Emmanuel, are deprived of his gift, which is eternal life. Not receiving the incorruptible word, they remain in mortal flesh and are debtors to death, not obtaining the antidote of life. To those, excuse me, to these, the word says, mentioning his own gift of grace, I said, you are all the sons of the highest and gods, but you shall die like men. Undoubtedly, he speaks these words to those who have not received the gift of adoption, but who despise the incarnation of the pure generation of the word of God, defraud human nature of promotion into God, and prove themselves ungrateful to the word of God who became flesh for them. For it was for this purpose that the word of God was made man, 
And he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, having been taken into the Word and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. For there is no other way we could have attained to incorruptibility and immortality unless we had been united to incorruptibility and immortality. How could we be joined to incorruptibility and immortality unless first incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we are, so that the corruptible might be swallowed up by incorruptibility and the mortal by immortality, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, it is the incarnation that separates the gospel, Christianity, from any and every other religious system. And in fact, I would even say that it is, it is the, the understanding of the incarnation and the Christological idea that separates even many faiths within Christianity. See, this is the point where other religions and scoffers alike deny the gospel and its power. They deny that Jesus was, could be fully God and fully man. Or they go down this other path of heresy and they think that God uh, was alone in heaven and that Jesus is this concept created by God in the incarnation. And both of those are false narratives. They are things that have divided the church and have hindered the church. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and Jesus has always been with the Father along with the Spirit. That is that Trinitarian life. There is no beginning and no end to the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are three distinctive personalities that live within union to one another, preferring one another, honoring one another, giving that, that other giving love but yet in complete harmony with one another. You see, without the incarnation, there is no deity on the part of Jesus. He is merely a man, or at best, a man who achieved this Christ consciousness that, that New Agers and, and a lot of progressive Christians want to tout. It's, 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 I've got to watch my audience here. It's BS. He is fully God and fully man. It's also the stumbling block for many who cannot fathom a holy God taking on the form of a, quote, unclean man. And that whole idea is nothing more than Gnosticism. It's pagan Gnosticism. I, I've got a, a friend of mine uh, who, who uh, has got a church down in another part of the country, and he had, uh, they were doing something. He posted something the other day, and and it just it, it irritated me so much. I didn't even respond, and, I, and maybe I should have because it, it, it to me it, it is it is a defining line of this gospel that, that we we want to proclaim. But he was quoting somebody that was at his church, uh, and and the guy had basically said that um, your your body and your mind aren't saved. Jesus only saved your spirit. And friends, I'm telling you that is a heresy from the pit of hell. If Jesus doesn't save us completely, he doesn't save us at all. There is no this, that, pick and choose. He came to fully immerse himself into our darkness, into our estrangement, so that he could take it upon himself and redeem the entire basis of humanity with the Father. Uh, Madeline LaIngle said, there's nothing so secular that it cannot be sacred, and that is one of the deepest messages of the Incarnation. The Incarnation is all about Jesus reconciling us to the Father, making us like him in unbroken fellowship and union within the Godhead. 
uh, to quote Athanasius, and I'll just throw a couple plugs here. Uh, if, if you're, and, and, and I'm sure many of you are, are very familiar with it. If you're not, um, I would recommend uh, a couple, a couple um, things. Uh, one is the early church fathers, um, Athanasius. Um, Athanasius, his Treaty of the Incarnation is one of the most profound books um, that will literally just change your understanding of um, the Godhead and of the Incarnation and what that means. Um, the other one is Thomas F. Torrance, uh, the great Scottish theologian. Um, and I'll quote him a little bit later but just because he has some phenomenal stuff. But this is another quote from Athanasius and his treaty. He says, Now in truth, this great work was peculiarly suited to God's goodness. For if a king, having founded a house or a city, if it is beset by bandits from the carelessness of its inmates, does not by any means neglect it, but avenges and reclaims it as his own work, having regard not to the carelessness of the inhabitants, but to what beseems himself. Much more did God the word of the all-good Father not neglect the race of men, his work going to corruption, but while he blotted out the death which had ensued by the offering of his own body, he corrected their neglect by his own teaching, restoring all that was man's by his own power, meaning Jesus' own power. What, what, what Athanasius is saying here is that when God created mankind, okay, so here is Father, Son, and Spirit in the realm of eternity. I can't explain it. I don't even understand it myself. They just are. They are Father, Son, and Spirit. They have no beginning. And in their union with one another, they go, we want to share our union with others. And so they create mankind. Now, if, if God is what we say he is, what we see from scriptures, if he's all-knowing, then even as he's plotting this thing out and he's creating man and he puts them in the garden, they're perfect. This thing is ideal. It is heaven. Earth was heaven. They walked in the cool of the day. They had this relationship. They were symbiotic. They were in union. It was beautiful. But the father knew that they would trip and fall. But it didn't stop them from still creating. They knew. They weren't surprised. And so Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God, that word God, Elohim, I'm sure many of us, I mean, we know that word. But if you look it up in the Hebrew, it is plural, as in God's. In the beginning, God created. And then down in verse 26, of course, we understand right before the creation of man, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Clearly, he is referring when we, because we, so many times we read this, this word God and we think of this, this singular character, this, this Zeus up in the sky, God is doing this. And we forget that God 
doesn't act alone or the Father doesn't act alone, but always in unison with the Son and the Spirit. And so when they say, let us make man in our image, they are talking in the totalitarian, the total entity of the Trinitarian life. Let us make man like us. The image, that means it's, it's a shadow, it's a resemblance, it's a representative figure. It's, a, it, 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 it's, a, it's something that's made in like fashion or manner. The New Living Translation actually quotes, or uh, reads Genesis 126, let us make man in our image to be like us. And we have to understand that God is three distinct images who are at one with one another. They are family, and they are in union with one another. For so long in the, in the, in the tradition that I grew up, I always, when I would think of God or I would think of heaven or when these things were taught, there was always this, it was this picture of a courtroom. And, we, and here in the West, we have such of this legal mentality when it comes to the God. And I've come to understand that we've missed, the, we've missed it. And when I think of the Trinity, when I think of Father, Son, and Spirit, and including us into their, land, into their life, into their divine dance, the, the picture now that I get is it's not, it's not a courtroom. It's a family room. You see, when a man and a woman get married, we say, and, and, and I'm sure many of you have probably performed ceremonies. I actually just was, uh, my daughter just got married last weekend, a week ago yesterday. And uh, so uh, my father actually did the ceremony and, so I could get my daughter away. And, but, you know, in, in a marriage ceremony, we quote the scriptures as they say, and, and the, the man and woman will become one, right? So we say that in marriage we become one. Well, listen, the man and the woman don't symbiotically, like, fuse together into some, like, grief Greek, you know, mythic figure, they're still separate. They're still unique. They're still their own person, but they have become one. And in the truest sense of what marriage represents, they have considered the other. They have this other giving love. They have, they have become one in their mode of operation, even though they are still distinctively different. And that's what represents the Trinity, not that there is this one God. No, there are three. Let us make let God, in the beginning, God, Elohim, plural. Let us. There are three distinctive personalities, to use that terminology. But they are one. They are together. They are in such divine union with one another. See, Scripture is clear that God is not some multi-personality being. You know, Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't like God on the cross and then, and then, and then you know, God somehow turned away. I mean, how do you turn away from yourself? I mean, it's just absurd some of the things we've come up with in the Western church. He's not a multi-personality being. He is, they are three who are in union with one another. They are one. And, 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 and to go back, again, this idea of Jesus, and, and, and one of the things that, that startles me uh, of, of a lot of our traditions is how we, we view God, the Father, as this holy, 
righteous, supreme being who can't look on evil, which again is unscriptural and just unfounded. And then there's Jesus, you know, the father's whipping boy who came down to, to take the punishment that God needed, you know, to, to, to somehow get his, his, his vengeance out to, 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 you know, so he could have his way. We've always got this thing so screwed up. And then we basically place Jesus less than God, less than the Father. And it's simply not true. And I know all of you know this verse, but I'm going to read it out of a couple translations, and I want to dive into this for just a couple minutes here. And it's John chapter 1, verse, several verses, but verse 1 specifically. And we all know this is in the beginning. Again, notice how John, the Apostle John, if you read John's Gospel and then his three epistles later on uh, in the New Testament, the, the way that our New Testament's ordered, you will see that John very clearly has one mission in his writings. As he is telling the story of Jesus and, and the encounters of the earthly ministry of Jesus and all these things, and then you go to the, the, the first, second, third John, John is clearly trying to get across to his readers that Jesus is the entire story. That the whole plot is about Jesus. And if we do not, if we miss Jesus being from the beginning of this whole situation, then we've missed the plot. And so from the very beginning of his gospel, he uses the very terminology that we see in the beginning of our scriptures in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, John says, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, I love the Bible. I love the Holy Scriptures. I'm going to read today out of about three different translations. I, I personally have over 76 translations in my library. Uh, I love the scriptures. I love the word of God. I love different translations and, and transliterations and all these things because it gives a different perspective. And it, it's, it's someone interpreting and, 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 and getting from their revelation what they're what they're getting from that original text. And it's, it's just good to have a well-balanced, and, and you, you get things from different perspectives. Um, so I love the scriptures. But I want to tell you, in the modern Western church, we have idolized the scriptures as the word of God. The scriptures are not the word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, clearly stated. John is on a, I mean, there's not even an introduction here. John's not going, hi, it's John the Apostle, blessing and peace and grace. No, no. He just starts off and says, listen, people, here's the deal. In the beginning was the Word, the Word of God. He was with God. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot even comprehend, overcome it. It cannot even comprehend it. The Greek word in that um, chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 1, 
says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. But that word with translated in our uh, most of our modern translations is the Greek word pros, P-R-O-S, and it means face to face. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with God. A lot of times we not we may not preach this in a lot of our churches. But it's kind of an underlying thing. We kind of have this interpretation. At least it's my experience. And, and we think, again, here's God sitting on his throne. And then all of a sudden, here's, here's this lesser throne, maybe, and that's got Jesus. And then there's a lesser throne, and it's got Holy Spirit. Or we think that somehow Jesus is blocking, like, all of our wretchedness from God the Father and all these things. And what, what John is telling us, and I'm, I'm actually doing this as I sit here just because it's an example. I know nobody can see me. But I've, I've got a chair here and I'm sitting in a chair, and then I put this other chair right in front of me. And if there was somebody sitting in this chair across from me, like, I wouldn't even, our knees wouldn't even be touching. We would like, literally straddle each other where my knee is up against this chair, and his, his knee would be up against my chair right between my legs. And we're sitting there, and we are face to face. We are intimate. We are together. We are right here on the same page, on the same plane. We are one. That is, the, that is the, the, what John is trying to tell us. The, um, the Passion Translation reads those first couple of verses like this. says, in the very beginning, the living expression was already there. And the living expression was with God, yet fully God. They were together, face to face, in the very beginning. And through his creative inspiration, this living expression made all things. For nothing has existence apart from him. For nothing has existence apart from him. I love when people try to tell me that, you know, oh, so-and-so, you know, they don't have Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They don't have Jesus. And I'm like, how foolish can you be, friend? If we didn't have Jesus, we wouldn't exist. Now, I'm, I understand that we all have a certain revelation or knowledge or a lack thereof of Jesus inside of us. But he is the, not only the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. If Jesus is not present, there is nothing left because he is in all things. Uh, the, the, uh, the mirror translation says this. He says, to go back to the very beginning is to find the word already present there. The logic of God defines the only possible place where humankind can trace their genesis. The word is I am. God's eternal eloquence echoes and concludes in him. The word equals God. The beginning mirrors the word face to face with God. The logos is the source. Everything commences in him. He remains the exclusive parent reference to their genesis. There is nothing original except the word. His life is the light that defines our lives. Thomas F. Torrance says this. He says, John is saying, we're in reference here to, to, to John's gospel. 
John is saying that Jesus Christ himself is the tabernacle of God among men and women. Himself, the word of God enshrined in the flesh and in him that the glory of God is to be seen. The word is God, the creator. Word by whom all things are made. He is the eternal word, but now that word, without ceasing to be what it eternally is, becomes a creature. He enters within the creaturely existence he created and becomes one with his creatures. However, he enters into the creation in such a way as to dwell in it as a personal presence who comes to his own, who is not received, but who affects personal meeting and faith with those who do not receive, or excuse me, who do receive him. It is a personal word who becomes flesh and meets us as man. See, in becoming flesh, the word penetrated into hostile territory, into our human alienation and estrangement from God. When word became flesh, he became all that we are in our opposition to God, in our bondage under the law. That is the amazing act of gracious condescension in the incarnation, that God the Son should assume our flesh, enter a human existence under divine judgment. One thing should be abundantly clear, Torrance goes on to say, that if Jesus Christ did not assume our fallen flesh, our fallen humanity, then our fallen humanity is untouched by his work. For the unassumed is the unredeemed. And that's a phrase I want to just, just stop on for a moment. For the unassumed is the unredeemed. And that is in patristic theology. The early church fathers, the theology of the early church fathers, we call it patristic theology, it argued that our whole flesh needed to be assumed by Christ in order to be healed, i.e. body, mind, and soul. For whatever was not assumed by him was unredeemed and unhealed. And so that phrase, you find that phrase common in patristic theology amongst the early church fathers, the unassumed is the unredeemed. And, and they use that phrase to, to, to articulate that Jesus, through the incarnation, became fully, fully human, body, mind, and soul. Scripture tells us that he was tempted in every way like us. He always was familiar with our struggles, with our brokenness, with our estrangement. He entered into those feelings of our own depraved mind because it was in entering into that that he could then, on the cross and through the death, burial, and resurrection, redeem those things as a human. If the word of God did not really come into our fallen existence, Torrance says, if the Son of God did not actually come where we are and join himself to us and range himself with us where we are in sin and under judgment, how could it be said that Christ really took our place, took our cause upon himself in order to redeem us? And it can't. See, Jesus 
through the incarnation forever entered into humanity. And then when we get to the cross, as a fully human, as that, see, we think, you know, we, we look and we look at the Old Testament, we think of, of, the, uh, of all the covenants that were made, and especially we always talk about the covenant with Israel and, 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 and how there's, you know, God had his part and man had his part, and, and man always failed. We have proven through the course of our human history that we are incapable of keeping our end of the bargain. There is no bargain to be kept because we can't do it. Israel couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. The disciples couldn't do it. We have proven time and time again that we are not capable of keeping the law, of keeping our end of the bargain. I love when people want to point out you know, the, the, like when Jesus, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and you know, I, I hear people say, you know, man, that, that, that's the instruction for the New Testament believer. And, and I, I wonder sometimes if people really understand what, how Scripture is, is put together. Because, you know, we, we divided it up in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's not the New Covenant. See, the, 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 the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are those disciples telling their history, their story, of the life of Jesus and their encounters with Jesus and what they saw and experienced that led up into the cross and then the ascension and then right, you know, to the, in the acts into the early church. They are not giving us words to live by. They're telling us the story of what happened. See, so here we have this history of Israel and this history of, of God's relationship with Israel. They failed and 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 they failed. And then here comes Jesus. And we get the Sermon on the Mountain. Preachers just, you know, they get this, uh, you know, this, this hard-on for the Sermon on the Mount. Like, this is, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're going to do. And they start going through this. And, and I, 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 it makes me chuckle because here's Jesus, so for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, and he's referring to the law that was given to Israel. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard in the law to not kill. But I tell you that even if you look at a bro- somebody and call them a fool, you've committed murder in your heart. So you have this situation where God, Jesus, we, we want to tell, you know, well, he's given, us, he's given us this new method, you know, and he's given us the grace to do it. So what we couldn't do under the old covenant, Jesus is saying, here's the new one, it's harder, now do it. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's absolutely asinine. He wasn't giving us something to do. He was frustrating us to the point that we recognized finally that we were incapable of keeping it. It wasn't our position to keep it. We're incapable of keeping our side of the argument, of, of, the, of, the, of the covenant. We're incapable of keeping our side of the deal. Jesus was frustrating them. Go to the, 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 the ones that came to Jesus. Hey, what must I do to be saved? Well, to the, you know, to, the, to the rich young ruler, 
you know, he goes on once. To, to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And he, he gives these things. And a lot of them have to do with, with the scriptures, the Old Testament. They're like, okay. And, there's, and, then, and then here, but, but the rich and really goes, well, you know, keep the law. Don't do this or that. And the rich one goes, oh, I, 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 I'm doing those things. And Jesus completely goes off script and goes, all right, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What? Excuse me? That's not in the law. Where'd that come from? What do you mean i got to sell everything I have to get into heaven? What's going on here? Jesus is just, Jesus is, is, is he's taking the, the, the rich young ruler who's going, oh, yep, I've done, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good at that. He's going, all right, well, we've got to give you something that you can't do. Because the point is to frustrate us that it is, we are incapable. Jesus came and he entered into our humanity so that he could be our end of the bargain as a human, the vicarious man. The vicarious man who takes care of us. Uh, one of my absolute favorite, and I, and I uh, just got a couple minutes here. I would absolutely could spend days, weeks, months, and years in the book of Romans, uh, particularly Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. But Romans chapter 5. Verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world, and as all was given blood. Then verse 15 says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass through condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the same many will be made righteous. And see, so we have no issue in, in, our, in, our, in our modern theology to believe in Adam's sin. We give Adam all the power in the world. Well, Adam sinned, therefore we're all born into sin. We're all under Adam's sin. We, we, we preach that. We, we don't have a problem with that. I mean, I didn't eat of the tree. None of you ate from the tree. But Adam was the representative of humankind. So what he did translated to all of humanity. Paul, very clearly here in Romans chapter 5, is saying that Jesus now, through the incarnation, be becoming fully man, he has now replaced Adam as the representative human figure in the covenant between God and man. Jesus, as God, is now both ends of the covenant. It's not up to us to do it. He has done it. And so I love having conversations with people when they, they absolutely have no problem believing that all, all are sinners because of Adam, but you say that all are, are righteous because of Jesus, and they, they get their panties all in a, uh, a pinch. But Scripture is very clear. 
as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. We don't have a problem with that. All men. Who's excluded from all? Nobody. So, likewise, in the same way, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for what? Oh, all men. Hmm. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many, same words, same terminology, will be made righteous. Jesus, through the incarnation, has become what we could never become. But in that has included us. He has wrapped us up into it. By becoming humanity, not only has he done what we couldn't do, but by becoming human, he has literally taken all of humanity and folded us up into his own self and included us into his very act. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, like when Christ died, we died with him. We were buried with him, and we were raised with him, co-crucified, co-buried, and co-raised. We are now in this together. This is not our fight. This is not our thing to complete. This is something that Jesus has done, and we get to come along for the ride. See, Jesus didn't come to be our example. He came to be our substitute. Through the incarnation, he has redeemed what was fallen, and he's restored what had been perverted. The whole point of why he came and the precise reason that he came as one of us, as the word made flesh who dwelt among us through the incarnation. Jesus is the representative man. You see, at the crucifixion, Athanasius told that story a little earlier I read uh, about, about uh, the landowner who had the land, and, and, and because of the citizens that wouldn't keep it up and, and let the thieves and all the stuff, that, that he wouldn't just stand by and let that go, even though it was their carelessness that did it, but he stepped in. Uh, John Carter says, at the crucifixion, God rejects and says no to disordered human sin that caused alienation from him. However, God's no is not directed at us, even though we deserve it, because it was our rejection of God. Instead, Jesus takes the rejection and the no of God totally upon himself as the human representative of and substitute for all of humanity. Once again, uh, Thomas Torrance says, he who knew no sin became sin for us exchanging his riches for our poverty, his perfection for our imperfection, his incorruptible for our corruption, his eternal life for our mortality. Thus Christ took from Mary a corruptible and mortal body in order that he might take our sin, judge and condemn it in the flesh, and so assume our human nature as we have it in the fallen world that he might heal, sanctify, and redeem it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and in the incarnation, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Henceforth, any attack, even on the least of men, is an attack on Christ, who took the form of man and in his own person restored the image of God and all that bears a human form. 
Through fellowship and communion with the incarnate Lord, we recover our true humanity. And at the same time, we are delivered from that individualism, which is the consequence of sin, and retrieve our solidarity with the whole human race. By being partakers of Christ, Christ incarnate, we are partakers in the whole humanity which he bore. We now know that we have been taken up and born in the humanity of Jesus. And therefore, that new nature which we now enjoy means that we too must bear the sins and sorrows of others. The incarnate Lord makes his followers the brothers of all mankind. One final, one final quote here uh, from, again, Athanasius. He says, The body of the word, then, being a real human body, in spite of its having been uniquely formed from a virgin, was of itself mortal and, like other bodies, liable to death. But the indwelling of the word loosed it from this natural liability so that corruption could not touch it. Thus, it happened that two opposite marvels took place at once. The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body, yet because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. The Son of God became the son of man, a son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Hallelujah. And we could talk... Talk about this for hours upon hours upon hours, but um, how quickly a few minutes can can go by. Um, but there's a lot there. There's a there's a lot there, and and I just I would I would just pray that that something in there has sparked uh, your spirit, and I encourage you to delve deep. And depending on what your um, your uh, faculty is uh, within a church or a teaching ministry or a traveling ministry or whatever it is that you may do, or just a lay person, whatever the case may be. Uh, I challenge you to dig deep into the incarnation, the Trinitarian life, and that everything that we preach and everything that proceeds out of our mouth and everything that we sing is from a Christological point of view, from a finished work point of view, that Jesus has fully accomplished everything. In fact, even, again, Paul says, before the foundations of the world, he was already crucified for us. Like this was never a, this was never a plan B. It was always plan A. God always knew. The Holy Spirit always knew. Jesus always knew. The Trinity always knew what was going to take place. And in that other giving love, Jesus said, I'll do it. I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to become them so that they can enter into our life. And now Father, Son, and Spirit have invited all of humanity through the incarnation of Jesus into the divine dance of the Trinitarian life. And friends, that's the gospel. That's our message. That's what we tell believers. That's what I tell unbelievers. That's what I tell everybody, is that you have been included. Come and join the party. There is nothing like it. And it is the power of salvation. It is the power of redemption, and it is the power to change our minds that were once alienated from God to understand and embrace the union and the love 
that the Father had, and he demonstrated it through the person of Jesus Christ. God bless. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, everyone, you can click on star six um, to get back on. If you want to ask any questions before he goes, <laughs> star six. That was amazing. That was amazing. Amen. What a revelation. What a revelation. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, let's just close in prayer and end. And, um, amen. Um, Kip, do you want to um, pray or what? Sure. Okay. Father, we just, uh, we are blown away uh, continually, daily, just completely blown away out of our minds at what you have done, who you are, the person that you are, Father, Son, and Spirit, the love that you have for one another and the love that you have shared with us, the love that you have invited us into to be partakers of with you. What a joy. What a joy. And I just thank you, Father, for your inclusion of us, for your unending love for us. And I just pray and ask that each of us grow in greater understanding of that revelation. So that everywhere we go and everybody we talk to, as my friend Ben Dunn used to sing, uh, I'm a glory pot, tip me over and pour me out. Let us spill the revelation of who you are, the incarnate Lord, fully God, fully man, taking our place, but including us, not excluding us by taking our place, but including us in it so that we could be divine partakers. Let us live it. Let us learn it. Let us know it. Let us speak it. Let us proclaim it. We pray it in your name, your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kip, and thank you for taking your time. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for calling in. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.